So Preston Boyd Moss, 1863 to 1947, and there's more going on in a letter. He wrote this in a letter. There's more going on in Billings, Montana at midnight than in Paris, Missouri at noon. This was his impression after this first day arrived in Billings, uh, coming from Paris, Missouri. Uh, PB, as, and that's how I'm going to refer to him, that's how we know him, was a business entrepreneur in Missouri as a very young man, and there he was a lumberman. He owned at least three lumber yards, and we're, we're not sure that that was all. There may be two others. Uh, we haven't confirmed those. But he wasn't very fond of that business, and he wanted to change his business target and goals, and he wanted to become a banker, and that is because his family were bankers. And, but he couldn't go into competition with them in that town, so he was looking for a new opportunity, so he came to Billings, Montana to see what was going on. As a result, I'm gonna step out in front of this because I'm a guy who likes to walk in the group. As a result, he ended up working at the First National Bank in Billings as a cashier. So he was hired in a job, he came here in 1892, he was hired in a job as a cashier, and in those days, many of you may be aware that, that was a, an important position in the bank. It was number three. So the owner and president of the bank was actually a New Yorker, lived in New York City, and did not live here in town. And then there was a vice president, and then PB was the cashier. However, within three to four years, PB owned the bank. So he worked diligently to be in that business. And I can tell you that as that, that bank used to stand down on First Avenue in North Montana, <coughs> right down here, or uh, not First Avenue, Montana Avenue. And uh, among other things besides banking, I want to I want to show this list now. Now this is a part of the list that there's 45 businesses on here that PB either started or acquired while he lived in Billings. Some of these businesses are really treasures and those businesses still exist today in addition to these 45 that you see here there were um, i did advance but it didn't go there we go there were the moss family investments now there were investments made through pb or by pb or with pb and the rest of his family which would be daughters and sons and his wife uh, I've listed these, there were others besides these, but if you'll notice here, there are 22 localized consumer electric companies. He was so intent on modernizing the communities within the region and the state, his mantra was, you gotta have good communications, you gotta have good transportation, you have to have education, and you have to have proper living and business opportunities and facilities and so he made it his business to make sure that electrification was paramount in the state the rea came along later and took that responsibility from him as well but that'll just give you an idea of more of his investments today we're going to talk about the real impact and businesses that he started or were principally involved in that exist today.
So this short list here, First National Bank is not, of course, I put that up there because it was important. He was a banker as well as other things. He also started the First Trust and Savings Bank in 1906, and that bank was located in this building down on the street level. And I get, I'll get into this building a little bit further. Billy Shirt Company, the Northern Hotel, here we are. Billings Investment Company, Northwestern Development Company. This was a huge enterprise, and I have just a little bit later to talk about that. Uh, the Gazette Ring, the telephone companies. You know, PB, interesting here, if you've been to the Moss Mansion, how many have been to the Moss Mansion? I know that at least three or four of you have. I've seen you there. Okay, how? If you noticed, you saw this telephone hanging on the wall in the parlor. That telephone may be, we think it is, the very first dial telephone in the city of Billings. It's not the first telephone that was in that house. PB started or owned eight telephone companies and a construction company to, to build telephone service in the state. And his, how should I say this, his interest was to have the latest technology and communication available. If he was going to be in that business, he wanted to offer the latest, best stuff. So as a result, dial telephone service existed in Billings three to five years before they had it in New York City. About a year after they had it in Chicago, because it was in Chicago where he saw the switching instrumentation that took the, that mechanical device to be a lot, a lot of hand dial service. This particular phone is interesting because there are 11 finger holes in it. The very top one here, I'm going to try this right now, right up here, that top one says long distance. Now, if so if you wanted to dial a local number, when I was a child growing up here, our local phone number was 8234. If we were going to have a call from the Moss Mansion, for example, that never happened. If we were, all we'd have to do is dial 8234, and it would ring at our house, and of course it would ring at three other houses too, right? party lines, and at that time it was four parties, but they were all in four number digits. But if you wanted to make a long distance call, you had to, to dial that top number and that ran you to the operator who then handled the call for you. I was taken by that phone. I, I, I really am, and still, it's one of my favorite artifacts in the house. These are his telephone enterprises. Montana and Wyoming Telephone Company, Billings Mutual Telephone Company, Billings Telephone Construction Company, Moffat Telephone Company, Montana Independent Telephone Company, Lewistown Billings Telephone Company, and he was a partner in that one with two other gentlemen. Intermountain Consolidated Telephone Company was one that he decided that that had to be his primary business. And then he consolidated all of them into the Interstate Telephone Company. After that consolidation, PB sold his holdings to Bell Telephone for $316,000 in 1914. Now, if you want to know how much that would be, you know, in real money today, you know, just multiply that by 25. In 1914, the exchange rate to today's money is 25 to 1. So that was a bunch of cash, but he used that cash. He kept, he kept building his enterprises and his businesses as I described earlier. 
The next thing that's kind of a remarkable investment here was the Billing Sugar Company. And, and the Billing Sugar Company was kind of a thought that he had. What can we do locally to take advantage of the aspect of local business and agriculture? And so uh, he, he built the sugar company along with two other gentlemen. But before he did, he wanted to find out if there was going to be product available to refine into sugar, and that would be the beet crop, of course. So two of his local friends, a guy named I.D. O'Donnell and another guy named Frank Zimmerman. Are you familiar with Zimmerman? Anybody? Zimmerman Trail here from Billings, okay. Those two gentlemen each planted 40-acre fields of test beets, and the tonnage was so great, and the sugar content was so large that they thought immediately it was going to be a profitable investment, and so PB put $650,000 of his own money at that time. You can think of that now. That was in 1905. And, and his two other compadres, I.D. O'Donnell being one of them, and another one, H.W. Uh, Rowley. Uh, you'll hear his name a lot in this presentation as well. They built that. They built the sugar plant. And uh, it was sold to Western Sugar, Great Western Sugar, later. Many of you may remember going to the store, children and everything, and G.W. brand was the sugar of choice in the local area, actually throughout the Mount, Intermountain West. And it's now Western Sugar Cooperative. So to give you an idea of how the development occurs, here on the left is a sugar beet factory. We don't know what date that was, but it was in production at that time. And it took them a whole year, by the way, to process those first 80 acres of beets that I just described. And, and that's kind of interesting, because now there'll be 80,000 acres of beets coming down there in about a nine-month period. Pretty interesting. And today, a picture over here on the, on the right-hand side, that, that picture was taken a year ago. Uh, Larry Mayer is a photographer who works for the Gazette, and he does a lot of aerial photography. But uh, that gives you an idea of the size of the growth of the plant. And I think that's just a monumental uh, uh, condition, if you will. I, down here, I'm, I'm noting right here on, on the bottom of this, it's now in its 113th year of operation since PB built it. Uh, pretty remarkable. The Northern Hotel is another story of, of uh, kind of family achievement, if you will. Uh, it was capitalized at $20,000 at the time of their concept. And he and H.W. Rowley were the two who conceived the idea of having a grand hotel. And he's talking about comfort and, and opulence and that sort of thing rather than the name, right? And uh, he, they built that, they started it in 1902 and they opened it in 1904. And here's a picture on the, on the left of what it looked like between 1904 and 1916. At, at the time they built it, it had 69 rooms and all of the street level down here was all uh, retail or storefront, including the bank, First Crescent Savings Bank that I mentioned earlier that he started. This picture on the right here is, uh, pardon me, is, is the hotel after a remodeling was done in 1916. They added a, 
another floor and added a lobby. And I want to point out kind of an interesting thing here. You see this, this group of windows in the front of the building? It's about where we're standing right now, to be honest with you. And there is a picture that had been taken there of one of our presidents, former presidents, standing in that alcove up there uh, on that landing. And that didn't change, but there was really no lobby in the hotel. There was a desk that you checked in at. They had a, a cocktail lounge and a coffee shop and a, a restaurant in there, but that was about it. So, so in 1916, when they started this addition that they put on the top, they made this area here into a lobby. So it was all marble lined and it was quite nice. It was very inviting. Also, at that time, they put a sign up there. You can just barely see it, but it says Northern Hotel. This one over here is indistinguishable. And so that hotel stood there until 1940. And in 1940, as you can see here on the, uh, on the left, the uh, hotel caught fire. And I haven't really been able to determine why it caught fire, but at the time of construction, coal and wood were primary sources of fuel and they had active fires and boilers and that sort of thing. And it likely could have been something like that because it appeared that it started in the basement and then spread up through the structure. But the, it was a complete and total loss. And TV was standing across the street apparently here looking into the smoldering wreckage in the hole. And somebody asked him if he was just going to take the insurance money and retire. And he said, absolutely not. I'm going to rebuild that hotel. I'm going to make it the finest hotel in the Pacific Northwest. I'm going to make it fireproof. And he started the very next day. And I want you to, I want you to see this hotel structure right here. Now, this is where it's going up. Some pretty interesting stuff here. The first four floors, and you can see them here, were concrete, monolithic. And by the way, we're standing inside that shell right now. This is what he, this is what he put up. Four floors of concrete, fireproof. And on top of it, the rest of it, six floors of masonry, brick. 900,000 bricks, by the way. And over a million board feet lumber went into the hotel to finish it off. At the time it was completed, it had 269 guest rooms. And remember, before it caught fire, it had 200. And there were only three floors of hotel, fourth, the main floor being, of course, street uh, businesses. So the picture that you're seeing here now, that was what it looked like when it was finished. This picture was taken in 1970, but it never changed from that uh, image, if you will, until even today, it's, it's very little changed. But I gotta give credit to the Nelson brothers, the, the two guys that bought this hotel and restored it, literally, and turned it into the structure it is. It's quite a wonderful, wonderful place today. Uh, also, I wanna point out, how many of you have this booklet here? Here's a kind of a curiosity on page, hang on, I'm gonna to get to it here.
I think I can get to it. Somewhere in here is a picture of the Montana Avenue and the Union Depot. Have I lost my mind along with page six? What is page it? Six. Page six. Page six. Okay, does it show? I'm, I'm struggling through here because I didn't mark my page. Okay, well, if you can, you take a look at that, and it, it says right on there that it's circa 1920. Except the hotel is standing in that picture. Right. <laughs> so not all history is correct. <laughs> No, it's a hotel. It's it's that. Oh, I'm sorry. It's that picture right there. It's that hotel. Anyway, having said that, and some kind of details. I love that stuff, don't you? So, to to advance, to keep going. The hotel was closed in 2006, and I never did understand that. I didn't live here at that time. I moved away. At my career, didn't move back until 2014. And before I moved back, I actually tried to stay here in the hotel on two occasions as I was house hunting and that sort of thing, but couldn't get a room. It, it turned out to be a success right from the minute they reopened it. Uh, the Nelson brothers uh, uh, did the remodeling, they reopened it in 2013, and it's now in its 107th year of operation. And by the way, in 107 years, of actual operation. I did not include the years that it was not operating as a hotel or as anything for that matter. Stood there for six years without any, without any work. And so that's another testament to PB and uh, Rowling. PB owned the hotel or his family did until 1971. Uh, PB died, of course, in 1947, but the family still owned it. And those of you who are familiar with the hotel, may remember that in the day 1959, back 1959, they opened the Golden Bell Restaurant inside this hotel and it became one of the premier eateries in the city. It had to be a special deal to come to the Golden Bell when I was a kid, I can tell you that. We generally ate at the Chinese restaurant down the street when we went out, but occasionally we came in there. Uh, the way the hotel stands today, there's 260 guest rooms in it. So a slight change was made in the configuration of some rooms to allow for baths and all the, all the rooms that they're all en suites now. Uh, but when the hotel opened up, there was either a tub or a shower in every room, but not every room had a full bath. Uh, so the Nelsons made those accommodations. There will be question and answers at the end of this presentation, obviously, but if you see something, Particularly if you see an egregious error, <laughs> let me know. I'm pointing out somebody else's error. <laughs> uh, the Billings Polytechnic Institute. This is a this is really a, an achievement. Remember, in my comments earlier, I commented about how PB said education was going to be one of the keynotes, one of the things that advanced business and have a community to grow. Got to have uh, education, and so he and. Uh, uh, there were there were nine others besides he, ten men from the city and the region locally, who said we have to have some kind of advanced schooling capability. 
And so they, they conceived this project of having a kind of polytechnic institute where you could study sciences, uh, agriculture, uh, management, business, these sort of things, and, and engineering. And to achieve that, they needed scholars. They needed academic capability from people who could teach those things. And so they arranged, made some kind of a deal, I don't know what it really was, with uh, Lewis and Ernest Eaton, two brothers from California, who came here in 1909 to begin the Billings Polytechnic Institute. The Science Hall, which was the first building on the campus, was completed in 1909, and classes started in 1910. So uh, this building right here is what they call the Science Hall. Uh, as you can see right here in the corner of this building is this stone, Science Hall 1909. Today, that building is called Eaton Hall, after the two brothers and it is an administrative office building for the college. And it, became, it remained the Billings Polytechnic for quite a number of years. I'll point this picture out here. This picture was taken in 1910. This one was taken in 1930 or 1932 or something like that. Even the people at Rocky couldn't tell me what year it was taken, but they tried. They looked. And, uh, and obviously an aerial view, and this building is visible right there. And you can see how the campus is developing around it. Now, the interesting thing about this campus is that everybody who went to school here at the Billings Polytechnic Institute worked on it. They worked on it because they had to raise crops and animals and harvest and mill the products in order for they, so that they could eat. The concept of the education was to learn hands-on and to pay as you go, kind of a um, boarding school room and board contribution, if you will, because that's what the goal was, was to learn those concepts and to do that. Many of those students showed up with no money, landed on the depot down the street with a suitcase and what was on their back and had no money. And they had to walk to the campus to get there. There was no transportation for them either. But once they got there and once they were enrolled, they became a part of the entire structure of the school. It's pretty unusual when you think about it. And that first year of classes in 1910, there was only a handful. I think it started with six and ended up with about 13 or 14 students during that year. And today they have 1,100 students at Rocky Mountain College. And the campus as it exists today, uh, very, uh, I seem to have trouble with that button in my thumb. This is how it looks today in uh, 2018 and here again is Eaton Hall surrounded by an expanded campus and quite honestly we could not get enough. I have seven photos of the campus and I couldn't put them together into a collage to be able to put them on this presentation so I just thought I'd stick with Eaton Hall and show you that it's still there and 
I just, I, I, I'm taken by that. I didn't even attend the school. But then I didn't know anything about it. As a matter of fact, and, and in the notes earlier, probably glossed over a little bit, I didn't know anything about the mosses when I lived here. I got five minutes. I'm going to continue. Billings Gazette is another of the enterprises. It was founded May 3rd, 1885. Uh, by the way, it was the deal was finalized between the merger of three papers, creating the Billings Gazette on May the 2nd, 1885. At 11 p.m. that night, the entire building burned to the ground, along with the rest of the block of the city that it was in. And one person died as a result of it. They put their first issue out the following day in a remote facility, one of the other printing facilities of, of the paper, the merged paper. And uh, ever since its, its uh, inception, it, in every publication, in every paper, they published the year of uh, May 3rd, 1885 as their founding date. And it's in its 133rd year of operation. Here's a picture of the building today. We couldn't find any pictures uh, to show you throughout the years what it looked like. Even the Gazette didn't have any handy. So what else? Well, the other thing that the Northwestern Development Company, and I don't have enough time, and I won't go into it, but I will share with anybody later, this was an unbelievable attempt at business Founded in November of 1904, capitalized at $2 million, and I'm telling you there was $2 million in cash, and PB put in one and a half million of it in 1904. In 1904, the exchange rate was 29 and a quarter to one. We're talking about a ton of money that went in there, almost $30 million, and the, what, their, what their goal was in that business enterprise was so expansive, there's 24 different targets of business, construction, agriculture, mining, transportation, irrigation, everything. It's incredible. These are the things in history that many people who live today, certainly those of us who were born and raised here, didn't even know about. We did not know. You don't find P.B. Moss's name on every building in town. You can see Yagan's name on nearly every building in the county, and five counties for that matter, but not P.B. Moss. The only thing that was ever going to have his name on it, and he didn't want it, was Moss, Maine. Everybody familiar with Moss, Maine? It is a town designed by an architect, and it is the one enterprise that P.B. lost his butt on. <laughs> But it wasn't his fault. The war started. World War One killed everything. So to learn more about those 77 businesses that we are currently cataloged, and TB as an individual and his family as a contributor to the region, because it wasn't just PB, and to see one of the most incredible pieces of architecture off the eastern seaboard. Go to the Moss Mansion. It will be a reward to you to see how that family lived and to see it today. And I know some of you have been there, and it looks today, today, like it did in 1903 when they moved into it. And it's beautiful, isn't it? Yes. yes. It is. 